Well, we turn our attention now away from the Word of God sort of incarnated in, in this sign and sacrament to the preaching of God's Word, and we're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 11 and 12, continuing in our series uh, on the kings. But before I get into that, I, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever heard the description, self-made man? Have you heard that? Yes? Okay. Self-made. Um, self-made man, self-made woman, the, the, the idea that I have done it myself. Um, and there is this, uh, it's important for our sermon today, but, but I, I saw a really good incarnation of this attitude uh, in, in, a, in a movie. How many people have heard the movie? It's an old movie. It's called Shenandoah. Some people, it's a Jimmy Stewart movie. And it, it, the movie ta- it takes place during uh, the Civil War, for those of you from the South, uh, during the war between the states. And uh, uh, Jimmy Stewart uh, owns a plantation. He's a farmer. He's not a religious man. He married a woman who was religious. She's passed away. And they're having Thanksgiving. And the kids who have sort of taken on their mother's religion remind their dad, hey, dad, we got to pray before Thanksgiving. And um, we see, we see the, the, the fact that Jimmy Stewart sees himself as a self-made man. It comes out in this prayer. And I thought I would just share that with you right now. Lord. We cleared this land, we plowed it, sowed it, and harvested, we cooked the harvest. It wouldn't be here, we wouldn't be eating it if we hadn't done it all ourselves. We worked dog bone hard for every crumb and morsel, but we thank you just the same anyway, Lord, for this food we're about to eat. Amen. He doesn't quite get it, does he? Um... He thinks of himself as self-made. He did it. And as we get into this series, uh, Unforgettable Lessons from Forgotten Kings, we we begin to see some of that in the kings themselves. There's lots of things going on in the book of Kings, and Chronicles also covers a similar time period. It's a lot like a a fantasy story, maybe a Game of Thrones, not that I watched that show, but uh, uh, of palace intrigue and politics and betrayals, and wars, and assassinations. Um, And there's one strong, consistent theme throughout the book of Kings and through the life of these kings of Israel and Judah, and that's idolatry. Either people looking to false gods, sometimes looking to the true God, but worshiping him in a false sort of way, or just looking to themselves, worshiping themselves, looking to their own uh, resources, to live their life. Now, this morning we're looking at the story of Jeroboam. He was the first king of Israel. Last week we saw Rehoboam. I know this is a little confusing, but David was the great king. He had a son Solomon who also led Israel to prosperity, but kind of became wayward. He had a son, Rehoboam, and the kingdom was split under Rehoboam, and Jeroboam becomes the first king of the northern ten tribes. That's called Israel, and Rehoboam rules over what is known as Judah. And Jeroboam starts out really well. He starts out as God's man. God, you know, appoints him. He has a prophet go and set him apart to be the king of Israel, the 10 northern tribes. Just in character, he was advocating for the people of God. In fact, he had to flee from Solomon because because of God's picking him and and for his character and his integrity. Um, He had a good start. But while he may have had a good beginning, he, 
it did not end well. He forgot that his rule was a gift from God, and he looked to his own resources to maintain his kingdom. He relied on himself. He relied on his own wisdom. He relied on his own power. And instead of remembering he was a God-made man, he began thinking of himself as self-made. Let's look at some of his story in 1 Kings chapter 11. I can't read all of it here, but we'll read sections of it, and you'll get, you'll get the flavor of his life. Beginning in uh, chapter 11, verse 29 of 1 Kings. At that time, when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem, the prophet Ahijah, the Shilonite, found him on the road. And Ahijah had dressed himself in a new garment, and the two of them were alone in the open country. Then Ahijah laid hold of the new garment that was on him, and he tore it into 12 pieces, symbolizing the 12 tribes of Israel. And he said to Jeroboam, take for yourself 10 pieces For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I am about to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon and will give you ten tribes. But he shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city that I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel. Because they have forsaken me and worship Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of Moab, and Milcom, the god of the Ammonites, And they have not walked in my ways, doing what is right in my sight and keeping my statutes and my rules, as David his father did. And skipping to verse 37, And I will take you, and you shall reign over all that your soul desires, and you shall be king over Israel. And if you will listen to all that I command you, and will walk in my ways, and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commandments, as David my servant did, I will be with you and will build you a sure house as I built for David, and I will give Israel to you. And I will afflict the offspring of David because of this, but not forever. And then in 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 20, this is after Jeroboam had, fle- had he fleed, fleed? Fled, thank you. He fled from before Solomon because of this prophecy to Egypt because he was concerned Solomon would kill him. But when Solomon dies, he returns. Verse 20, And when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called to him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. There was none that followed the house of David, but the tribe of Judah only. Verse 26, And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David, If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold, and he said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan." Then this thing became a sin, for the people went as far as Dan to be before one. He also made temples on high places and appointed priests from among all the people who were not Levites. And Jeroboam appointed a feast on the 15th day of the eighth month, like the feast that was in Judah, and he offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he made, and he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places that he had made. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you this morning as we have already done in song. Now we 
We come to you as we look at your word and we pray that by your spirit you would help us to hear the message that you have for us. In our hearts, Lord, help us to submit to what you are saying to us. Give us ears to hear what you are saying, that we might not simply understand the, the literary connections, uh, the grammatical meaning of the sentences and paragraphs, but the spiritual application of it, Lord. Teach us how we may be faithful in walking with you as we look at the life of Jeroboam. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I'm going to be a little bit interactive here. How many things uh, seem to have great beginnings but don't necessarily have good endings? What are some, what are some thoughts? Good beginnings, but maybe not so, so great endings. Cardinal bullpen. That was the first thing said in the first service, too. Not the bullpen so much, but a Cardinals game. And in the, <laughs> baseball is an eternal spring of heartbreak. Anything else? I'm sorry, I didn't get Art Hill starts out well sledding down Art Hill and might not have a good end. I've had that experience on Art Hill. Huh? The McRib. From, from the mouths of babes. Great wisdom. Anything else? Movies, yes. So many movies start so well and so, so disappointing in the end. Anything else? Marriage. Marriage. Uh, marriage, only on rare occasions, doesn't start with, with such hope and promise and excitement and enthusiasm and passion. And it can go so wrong, can it? I'm reminded, uh, thank you for saying that, by the way. That brings me to my first illustration. I'm reminded of this movie I saw a number of years ago. It was called The War of the Roses. Anybody see that film? Uh, the War of the Roses, this couple uh, played by Michael Douglas and Kathleen Turner. They don't have a lot in the beginning of their marriage, but they have each other. That's all they need, they, and their love. And, and then they begin to build their, their lives together, their careers. They have children. They, 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 they buy this house. Uh, they begin renovating it, particularly Kathleen Turner. The wife is, invests a lot in it. And as they pursue their own personal interests and their careers, they begin to drift apart. They begin to have questions about how each one is living their life, they begin to be resentful towards one another, then they begin to be spiteful and hateful, and it ends not simply in divorce. They, 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 they go and they seek to be divorced, and then there's the question of the house. What happens with the house? And neither one wants to let go of it. And they end up in this battle royale over the house that becomes so, spins so far out of control, they end up destroying their house and, in fact, destroying themselves. They both die at the end of the movie. Talk about a bad ending. Jeroboam, he starts so well. He's God's man. He's a faithful servant of the rightful king. He's an advocate for the workforce of, 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 uh, of the king. Um, and uh, when the king loses his way, he speaks for them. And that takes a lot of bravery. It takes a lot of faithfulness to do that. He has to flee um, from, uh, from Solomon, but he comes back and the Lord makes him king. But here's the thing, as, as he's given responsibility, as he begins to enjoy success, this, 
these things begin to creep in to displace his devotion to God. His faithful devotion to the Lord isn't abandoned by Jeroboam, but it becomes muddled, confused. Does it sound familiar? No, you and I aren't kings, but we all have responsibilities. And we may have started well in our faith, maybe as children, or we came to the Lord later in life and we converted and we had such a passion for him. But then as we lived life, as we got married, as we took on promotions, as we bought a house, whatever it may be, other things begin to creep in and say, you know, we have to pay attention to these things too. And our devotion to the Lord becomes muddled by our concerns with other things. We may have started well, but how are we doing today? The lessons we can draw from Jeroboam aren't complicated. God made us all to be what we are. Uh, Whether it's our temporal success or our eternal success in Jesus Christ, we know that we have great success. We're, we're, We're children, we're sons and daughters of the king of the universe. We have the great promise of the resurrection. But many of us also experience temporal blessings. Some of us, you know, at least compared to the rest of the world, we're, we're actually pretty well off. And then those among us might even be more well off. How do we think about that success? Is it a gift from God or are we responsible really for the success that we're experiencing? See, things are going to come in, creep in to displace God from his rightful place in our hearts. And the lesson that we need to learn from Jeroboam is that we need to be mindful of things, not simply that will challenge our faith, because some of us are like strong. We're ready for things where we say God is dead or your God is not worth worshiping. No, we're not going to say that. But there's other things that might come in the back door saying, well, it's not quite the way you thought of it, though. And our faith becomes muddled. We need to be mindful of things that will muddle our faith. We've got to note this at the beginning, talking about Jeroboam. When we talk about his idolatry, Jeroboam is not a worshiper of foreign gods. He worships Yahweh. And his early faithfulness leads the Lord to hand him the kingdom, the the ten northern tribes. Uh, Solomon, the king prior to uh, Jeroboam and, and, and Rehoboam, Uh, Solomon leads the kingdom to prosperity, partly by making treaties with the surrounding nations. Do any of you know what was one of the ways in the ancient world you would would, uh, sort of of, uh, solemnize a treaty? How? Marriage. And so Solomon married a lot of women. And they were typically, you know, daughters of important people in, in those other nations. And as he brought those wives back to Jerusalem, what he did was he uh, tolerated their worship of foreign gods in his midst. And it began to draw the nation away from faithful following of the Lord. Also, he becomes more harsh in his rule. He becomes harsh with the labor force that's serving him. And Jeroboam, who's a manager of some of that labor force, advocates for those, for those workers. And that's sort of a scary thing to tell the king, basically, stop doing what you're doing. But that's what he did. He was a man of character, a man of integrity. And he decides to rebuke the house of David, rebuke Solomon by tearing the kingdom away from someone who's not being faithful, Solomon, to Jeroboam, who has been faithful. 
See that in 1 Kings chapter 11. Behold, I am about to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon and will give you ten tribes. And when Solomon hears about this, how do you think he reacts? How do you think Solomon would react to this idea? Is he happy? He is not happy. He's angry. And Jeroboam flees out of fear of the king taking his life. He flees to Egypt. When Solomon dies, though, and Rehoboam takes the throne, Jeroboam returns. And when he he returns, he is welcomed with arms open wide by the people of Israel. 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 20. And when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. There was none that followed the house of David, but the tribe of Judah only. And more than this, Rehoboam, the, current, the, 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 the king, uh, the son of Solomon, decides not to uh, wage war against Jeroboam to get those uh, rebellious tribes back. He's, he's told by a prophet, don't do that. And so he relents. So essentially, Jeroboam steals the kingdom in, in, a, in a bloodless way. It's a bloodless coup. It's a fantastic victory. It's kind of like this. Look, I'm so great. That when, I, I, when I showed up, people just bowed down and worshiped. There's nothing that's more intoxicating, or very few things that are as intoxicating when after you've worked hard for something, maybe even suffered um, persecution for what it is you're trying to accomplish, and then things finally fall into place. You know, things just begin to click after years of, 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 of just struggling through something. Finally, the realization of your dreams and your vision. It's, it's an exciting moment, the, the close of a business deal. Uh, you've been working hard to get into a prestigious school, and you get the acceptance letter, uh, the promotion, maybe even to partner uh, in the firm that you're serving. It is an exciting moment. When I experience moments like that, sometimes I, in my head, do this, but sometimes even literally, I just go, man, this is awesome. Yes, kapow. Mm, I love it. Things are going right. And maybe you don't do that physically, but you know the feeling of it in your head, in your heart. And what can happen in that moment is this subtle shift of, oh, these things are going so awesome to, I am so awesome. I'm the bomb. I mean, Jeroboam, man, I didn't even need to do anything. I'm so great, I just showed up, and they made me king. Now, the scriptures aren't explicit that that's what was going on in his mind. Uh, but there are things that happened afterwards that make it clear that's, that's indeed the kind of shift that was happening. And the warning that we need to, to take from this is that we need to be mindful of presuming upon God's graciousness. Certainly his forgiveness, but beyond that, he blesses us with temporal things. With a nice house, with a family and children. Uh, with a good career, a job, a status in the community, whatever it is. He blesses us, and we can presume upon that by saying, this is not a gift. This is just me. Because I'm that good. Jeroboam begins to slip from thinking of himself as a God-made king to a self-made king. And if... If I'm right about this, then we would begin to see at least two things happening 
First, a diminishing attention to the Lord and devotion to him. And second, an attempt to maintain the kingdom, not by God's good graces and help, but by his own wits, his own resources. And that's exactly what we see happening in the life of Jeroboam as we go on from here. Uh, First, we see this in his attention to God diminishing, uh, proper attention to God diminishing. Instead of seeing an increased devotion, faithfulness to the Lord and to his statutes and to his commands, uh, we see him compromising those things. He doesn't abandon God, but he muddles his worship. The king and the people, in their excitement for a new beginning, bring some novel things, or at least apparently novel things, uh, to their worship of God. We see it in 1 Kings chapter 12, beginning in verse 28. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold, and he said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your God. That's where the temple, by the way, the temple of God was in Jerusalem. God even makes reference to the fact that that's the city I've chosen for worship of me, even as he's giving the kingdom to Jeroboam. But Jeroboam says, look, you've gone to Jerusalem for worship long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. Then this thing became a sin, for the people went as far as Dan to be before one. Again, I want to be clear about this. What the people of God are doing is not worshiping foreign gods. It's not the way they're thinking of what's happening here. In fact, they may be even hearkening back in their minds to to a a worship practice Israel had during the time of the Exodus. It was during the Exodus when Moses was on top of Mount Sinai that Aaron, his brother, the high priest, fashioned the golden calf so, so the people of God could worship the Lord. It was not a foreign God. It was, this is the way we're going to worship Yahweh with this idol. Now, it's true that politics were involved. I'll mention that in a little bit. But we might ask ourselves at this moment, how is it that the king and the people so readily adopted this idolatrous practice? What, what really moved them to, to do something that God clearly said, don't worship me this way, but yet they did it? Well, it's because true worship comes from the soul. It comes from deep down, and therefore it's demanding. It's just easier at times to have some external things kind of carry us along. Uh, A beautiful stone building, stained glass windows, a sense of solemnity in the place itself. Uh, Maybe it's the music. Maybe it's an image, something that focuses our mental attention, and that draws us to a sense of, of worship. It's just easier to have external things to lean on. And that's what was going on. Um, Jesus tells the Samaritan woman at the well, if you remember that story, he's traveling through Samaria, which is the northern part of Israel, where the ten tribes uh, were. This is obviously centuries later. She is a spiritual descendant of Jeroboam because she worships God, not in Jerusalem, but on the mountain uh, where, where they were located and having this conversation. And she makes this distinction about how Jews worship and how Samaritans worship. And Jesus says, a time is coming that you will worship not in Jerusalem or on this mountain, but in spirit and in truth. What is he trying to get out there? He's saying you really need, you need to be engaged. Your heart, your mind, your will with God when you come to him in 
worship. And that requires an openness, a vulnerability that's hard. It's uncomfortable. If we can get there, usually it's very satisfying, but man, it is difficult to to sustain. It's just much easier if I can just hear a good beat and get carried away with that. I can feel like I'm I'm worshiping. That idea uh, is embodied in the satirical song, uh, Spirit versus the Kick Drum. Uh, Derek Webb, former member of Cadman's Call, and and then later went out on a uh, solo career, implicitly critiques... um, our culture, evangelical culture, as tending to favor the good beat over the true movement of the Spirit in in our midst in worship. And in the song, he talks about worshiping the the true God in a false way. He walks through the Trinity, uh, the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And And in the chorus with the Spirit, it says this, I don't want the Spirit, I want the kick drum. I don't want the Spirit, I want the kick drum. I know how it works, I'm not dumb, I don't want the spirit, I want the kick drum. It's just easier. It's hard to really get, see the God spirit move in people in worship. What people are really drawn to is a good beat in worship. And if you have that, they'll come. And if you don't think, if you don't think church leaders are tempted by that way of thinking, you don't know church leaders. If I just put together the right stuff, the right formula, I'm going to get success, which is, which is people in the pews. I don't want the spirit. I want the kick drum. I know how it works. I'm not dumb. We're drawn to things like that. We're drawn to it because it's, it's, it's God-like. It, it feels like worship, but it's not true worship. And we're drawn to it because it's easier. And we worship the true God in a false way. I want to be clear here. I'm not criticizing the kick drum. I'm not criticizing stained glass. I'm not criticizing music. What I'm criticizing or pointing out is the way we abuse those things and make them idols. Robert Godfrey, a theologian, wrote a book, a pamphlet really, called Pleasing God in Our Worship. And he writes about the first worship of the golden calf during the Exodus. And this is what he says. The second commandment teaches us that idolatry is not only a matter of worshiping false gods, which is prohibited, prohibited in the first commandment. It is also a matter of worshiping the true God falsely. This commandment clearly forbids the use of images of God in worship, but also implicitly forbids all human invention in worship. The prohibition against images means that we must worship the true God only in ways that please him. The people of Israel claimed they were worshiping the Lord as the true God when they fashioned the golden calf, but it was idolatry. I was struck with an example, a modern example of this uh, when I gave that pamphlet to a student at the University of South Carolina, and she came back to talk to me about it after she had read it. We were having, uh, you know, coffee uh, in, in the, in the uh, cafeteria, and she had this troubled look on her face when she, when she came to the meeting. I said, what's wrong? She said, well, I was reading this pamphlet, and it reminded me of something that happened at a worship conference I went to. It was a college conference. It was dedicated only to worship. And there's one thing i got to tell you, that when you get college students together, there's a lot of enthusiasm and zeal, but not necessarily a lot of wisdom. 
She says, we were, we were worshiping, we were singing the song, and we were, very, we were getting carried away in the moment, and someone, there was a giant cross on stage, and someone jumped up on stage in the midst of singing, took the cross down, kind of threw it into the crowd, and it was getting passed around. And as it got near me, I just felt this compulsion to just, just touch it. I just wanted to touch it. Is that what this author is talking about? Um, yeah. And we see how even a symbol of God's grace and mercy can become an idol. Worship is not about getting carried away. Although if you get carried away, that's fine. It's not about our search for worship practices that please us, but about the Lord and honoring Him in ways in, ways in which He takes pleasure. Kind of like taking your spouse out on an anniversary dinner. I think I've used this example before, but I'll just, just point it out to you, the, the, the logic of this. I'm a husband. I'm talking about taking my wife out. If I take my wife out for an anniversary, what am I going to do? Am I going to take her out to do something which pleases her or pleases me? If I'm wise, what do I do? Do I take her to the monster truck show because I love monster trucks? Or do I take her to the musical, which she loves and I hate? What do I do? I please her. And worship, what do we do? Do we please ourselves or do we please the Lord? We need to be mindful because worshiping God in ways that please us is idolatry. Now, the last thing I want to talk about is Jeroboam's use of the people's devotion to God. Now, Jeroboam is not simply leading people into this man-made religion, into this self-pleasing idolatry, but, but he uses it as well to shore up his own political power. He's cynical in his use of this idolatry. Um, and we see it very clearly in 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 26. And Jeroboam said in his heart, this is after God has given him the kingdom graciously. You're a man of integrity. You've, you've served the king faithfully. You've served me faithfully. I'm going to put you in charge of the 10, 10 northern tribes. Now follow me. And what does he do? 26, and Jeroboam said in his heart, now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David if this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord of Jerusalem, then the heart of the people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. He is scared to death he's going to lose the kingdom if, if people keep worshiping in Jerusalem. So what does he do? He creates a new worship practice so they don't have to go down to Jerusalem. So they won't renew their loyalty to the house of David. Despite the fact that God said, look, I'm going to make you a great house. I'm going to prosper you. He turns to his own wits, his own wisdom, his own resources. And the new religion he creates worships the same God, celebrates the same redemption. It mimics the same practices. But while Judah has the temple, we have the golden calves. We, everything's the same. Yeah, they have the temple, but we have something they don't. The calves. 
And the God that established Jeroboam, the one that promised to maintain the house of Jeroboam, that exhorted Jeroboam not to turn to idolatry, couldn't be more displeased with this worship, couldn't be more displeased with Jeroboam. It was a cynical exploitation of the people's devotion to God and undermined their relationship with the Lord. Why did he do it? To make sure he would stay king. So let me ask you, do people today exploit religious conviction to advance their own political agendas and their power? Do they? They do. And so the warning for us is not to fall victim to it, to be mindful, not not to let our faith be muddled with someone else's political agenda. Now, one of the things we celebrate this July 4th weekend is freedom of religion. And what, and what was really established then was that the, that the government tend to in, tended to interfere with religious practice. This was saying, you need to stay out of religion. That's what we celebrate, one of the things we celebrate on July 4th weekend. And that's exactly what we see here, politics, power, government, meddling with religious practice. Why? To advance its own agenda. We need to be mindful of falling falling victim to that kind of manipulation. And then secondarily, we need to be mindful of our own tendency to use our religion to advance our personal agendas, to be self-serving. So I've said this a number of times, we need to be mindful of muddling our faith. How exactly do we do that? How do we be mindful well, one of the things it means is that we need to be self-reflective. We need the bandwidth to think. It's hard to do in our life. We have lots of good things going on in the world. We have children. We have grandchildren. We have all kinds of cultural practices, all kinds of good things to be involved with. Uh, but they can make our life so crowded that we don't have time to even think. Going to hockey, going to baseball practice with your kids is a good thing. But if you're doing it in a way that crowns out you contemplating and being with the Lord, it's become an idol. We need to make room, make bandwidth in our life to think, to contemplate, to meditate. That's what Christian prayer is. Getting with God and going, okay, God, I'm going over my day. What do you think? Should I be doing these things? What about this? I'm having trouble processing this other issue. What are your thoughts about it? Tim Keller has some practical suggestions in uncovering uh, our idols. It's a series of questions, and you'll see them. They're in uh, your bulletin. I have my bulletin somewhere up here. This card here on the back is 15 questions that we can ask ourselves when we're not sure if, if we're walking with the Lord or if we're getting muddled. Something's getting in the way. I'll read a few of them. What are you most afraid of? What are you... What do you long for most passionately? Where do you run for, for comfort? Uh, what do you complain about most? What angers you the most? What makes you happiest? How do you define yourself to people? These things have a way, these questions, if we take the time of uncovering what our idols are. Let's, let's, let's do this with Jeroboam. Let's just do a, you know, a practice session here. What was Jeroboam most afraid of? What was it? Losing his kingdom. He was afraid of losing power. So was his idol the golden calf? No. 
It was power. It was himself. We, we didn't even need to get to question two before we uncovered Jeroboam's. There were pragmatic reasons for what Jeroboam did for, for his, I'm going to use a big word here, his heterodoxy. So orthodoxy, ortho meaning straight, doxy meaning teaching, hetero meaning mixed, muddled. He had a pragmatic reason to intentionally muddle his faith. Jeroboam forgot that his reign was God-made, and he tried to maintain his kingdom through his own wits, and in the process he became an idolater. Worship not of the golden calf, but of himself. We need to be mindful. Is our religious practice self-serving? Is that why we show up on Sunday morning? To worship God or to keep our business contacts? Now, there's uh, more to Jeroboam's story. We don't have time to tell it all here. Uh, Prophets calling him back to faithfulness. Shallow attempts at repentance. A bad ending for him and, uh, and one of his children. And in fact, after Jeroboam dies, his son rules for only a year before he's assassinated and another house takes control over the 10 northern tribes of of Israel. But it's a reminder to us that it's better to start poorly and end well than the other way around. It's not enough for us to say, 10 years ago, I had the most meaningful religious experience and I started so well. That's great. How is that fleshing itself out today? It's also a reminder that Every day is the opportunity to change things around and to repent. Because it doesn't matter how you started. It only matters where you end. Are we walking consistently with our profession or are we worshiping the true God falsely? Has our faith become muddled with an idolatry of self? If it has... This day is the opportunity to say enough. I turn back to God and worship him from the heart and not just with my lips. Let's all pray for the bandwidth and the wisdom to have that kind of self-reflection this week that we might honor and worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for this opportunity to gather in your name. Thank you for the freedom of religion here in the United States where we can gather without fear of persecution. But we pray that we would not become distracted in our recreational activities this weekend or even in our patriotism to forget that what makes us great is your grace. We're not self-made. We're God-made. Help us to remember that this week, that we may worship you in spirit and in truth, both here in this place and in our lives through the week. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.